The first week of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a result of that, class has been canceled in terms of having a public audience, but we are still uh, continuing with our normal schedule, and on Tuesday night, it is 2 Samuel. So we're back in 2 Samuel this evening. And the foundation for our study is what's covered in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 37. However, uh, we are studying Psalm 3 because Second uh, Samuel 15, 16, 17 deals with the uh, Absalom conspiracy and rebellion against David. And Psalm 3 was written as David was fleeing from Absalom. So we are looking at uh, getting a picture of what is going on inside David's thinking as a believer who has been rejected by his beloved son, who has now led a conspiracy and revolt against him, and how David is handling this because Absalom has turned many of David's faithful followers and, and who he thought were friends against him. And so how are we to handle this when we come, against, come up against this kind of testing? Now, though this is people testing in a form of people testing, it also involves a lot of other categories of adversity. And so there's a lot of implications here for the spiritual life. So before we begin, I uh, just want to remind everyone that... Um, we need to be in prayer for our nation. We need to be in prayer for our president and all of his advisors that so they would make wise choices, wise decisions. We need to be in prayer for our church family, especially those who are a little older, who are in the target age range, and that we would all be making wise decisions. Uh, this, I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon, although for the time being, we, when we started this, we were thinking two weeks but a few weeks ago, I heard from, uh, read an article by an Israeli doctor as they were saying they were going to shut things down for two weeks. And he said, well, that's probably not going, going to do it because we need to go until we don't have any new cases. And that may take eight or ten weeks. And since then, just in the last three days, we've had various people uh, in government talk about eight weeks talk about three months, talk about maybe the end of July or even August. So we have no idea how long uh, this is going to take place, and it's unprecedented. It's uh, very different from anything that any approach any civilization has ever taken when it comes to uh, fighting a plague, pestilence, or, or virus. So what we need to do as believers is learn how we are to think, how we are to respond, how we are to react, so that we can be relaxed and so that we can be a faithful witness to those around us. This is a tremendous opportunity, and I'll talk more about this this coming, uh, this coming Sunday. So this last Sunday, I did a special on the COVID-19, focusing our attention on faith in the battle, many different promises, trying to encourage, strengthen everybody, I didn't have the time to really develop much on why does God allow these things to happen. I think that's a fundamental question for us to answer because especially parents, grandparents, uh, many adults, many young adults, why is this happening? What's going on? How can I trust God with this? This is a great opportunity to help people understand this. And historically, these kinds of 
national or international crises have been used by God to bring many people back to focus upon him, focus on that which has ultimate reality. Before we start, we'll prepare ourselves spiritually as we worship a God who is distinct, unique, a holy God. We, too, must recognize that we we sin and that we must be cleansed of sin. Ultimately, positional cleansing, real cleansing, takes place when we trust in Christ as our Savior. But as believers, we still sin. We are faithful, but we sin. We are the righteous, as the psalmist says, but we still sin. The difference is that we confess sin, that we grow, we mature, we press forward. We do not live like the wicked, and we are not influenced by the wicked. And so we come to the Lord trusting in what Christ did on the cross, admitting, acknowledging our sin to him, recognizing that it is Christ's death that is the foundation for our forgiveness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is such an encouragement for us. It strengthens us. It gives us insight into what is going on in the world and what is going on in our own lives and the fact that we have a sin nature and what is going on in our battle with our own sin nature. And it gives us the tools, the spiritual tools, the spiritual, uh, the spiritual foundation for being able to address the sin in our own life as well as the adversity, the assaults against us that we experience living in the devil's world and also dealing with our our own sin nature. But the culture around us is just arrayed against us because this is the devil's world, the devil's culture. Father, we thank you that you have answered prayer recently as Eager and Julia Smolyar were headed back to Ukraine and quite a journey as flights were canceled while they were yet on the way. And yet they finally arrived home, and we're thankful for answered prayer. We're thankful for that. Father, we're thankful for the way that things are uh, being provided for Jim Myers and his ministry. We all need to be in prayer for our missionaries because they are living in countries that don't have quite the access to many things that we do, although Ukraine is is not uh, quite as far behind as they were 20 years ago. They have to uh, set up set up various things so that the students can can um, learn, set up distance learning opportunities. And this is uh, always a quick uh, a challenge right in the middle of a semester. So, Father, we pray for Jim, thankful that you've provided that which they need. And we continue to pray for the, the speakers that should be going over there and not able to now. We pray for Jim that he'll be able to uh, pick up the, the ball and carry the weight uh, he's going to have to deal with some of his own travel situations as well. So, Father, this challenges every one of us to redirect our lives. And that always is a source of uh, anxiety, uncertainty. And, Father, we know that we just trust you, walk with you, and you stabilize us. Now, Father, help us as we study today. 
illuminate our minds to the answers to our questions about about the battle, about faith, about trusting you. Help us to have great insight into what David went through and the implications of that for what we go through. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles now to Psalm 3. <clears throat> Don't worry, I just have an ongoing little upper respiratory cough I've had for about six months, so doesn't have anything to, negative associated with it. One of the things that we're presented with, with the news cycle, the 24-hour news cycle, is, is many things get blown out of proportion. I'm not saying this is blown out of proportion. We don't know yet until this thing runs its course. A lot of people are making all sorts of uh, dogmatic statements about it. I think we need to be very careful of that. But for many people in our culture who are under the age of 40 for some respects and under even the age of 60 or 70 in other respects, this is, in terms of their life experience, something that's unprecedented. We've never had anything like this. We've had unprecedented national shutdowns around the globe. The borders of all of these uh, countries in Europe that had united under the EU well, as soon as this comes up, their border walls are going up. They're reinstituted all of their checkpoints and all of their border crossings. And as one person, uh, one pundit observed last week, uh, the major, major victim so far in this COVID-19 uh, pandemic is internationalism and globalism, which may be a, a very good thing. And so we see this all over the globe. So some things are certainly unprecedented. We're going to have an unprecedented supply problems. We're going to have an unprecedented marshalling of scientific resources and research around the world in order to fight this. And I think we're going to have an unprecedented amount of toilet paper bought. Now, I'm not quite sure why everybody is buying all of this toilet paper. Maybe they're waiting for something to hit the fan. I don't know. But this is this is clearly uh, just out of control. But on the other hand, to add some perspective for a lot of people, there's a lot about this that isn't that unprecedented. We may think that we are fighting an invisible foe. I heard the president today talking about this invisible enemy. And it is, but if you think through certain aspects of history, that there have been those who fought an invisible foe, or at least they didn't know they were there. There were, uh, for example, in American history, there were many pioneers who were going uh, across the prairie, or they were pioneers who were settling in the uh, Great Northwest, which back at that time meant the area of uh, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, Illinois, Indiana, and they had no idea there was an American Indian within a, a hundred miles, and yet all of a sudden they were shot, scalped, uh, many different things happened, and they were fighting an invisible foe with an enemy that seemed to be invisible. And suddenly everything changes, and a family is assaulted, and maybe everyone is killed, maybe one or two survive. And life is never the same again. We have seen wars and rumors of wars, sneak attacks, ambushes, all kinds of things that have taken place. There have been people in for many centuries until uh, just a couple of hundred years ago had no idea what germs were, had no idea 
uh, how diseases were passed along. And so all of a sudden there would be these plagues, and they had no idea how to explain them. And there were huge plagues. And if you can Google some of these, search them on the Internet, and find some fascinating information. But what we're seeing is not unprecedented. It may seem so because for the last hundred years we really haven't seen anything like this. But one of the things I'll talk a little bit more about on Sunday morning is the Antonine Plague. This was a um, plague that came in the late second century it, after Christ from 165 to 189. In 180, uh, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who gave his name to this period of time, the Antonine Caesars, died from this plague. Uh, they estimate that there were 2,000 to 3,000 deaths a day in Rome, that one quarter, uh, uh, one quarter of those that got infected died, and that as the total estimate of deaths was between 5 million to 10 million. And it may have killed as much as one-third of the population in some areas. This was horrendous, and they didn't have CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and ABC, CBS and NBC uh, giving them a a death-by-death account of how it was advancing. There were plagues in ancient Athens that uh, that were quite uh, devastating. There was what was called the Third Pandemic. And it is called the third pandemic because there were two previous outbreaks of bubonic plague in history. The second was what is known as the Black Death. And this third pandemic uh, was described an outbreak that began in China, of all places, in 1855. Actually, this third pandemic is dated from 1855 to the 1950s for 100 years until the, it died out when, when worldwide casualties dropped to about 200 per year. And in this uh, third pandemic, more than 12 million people in China and India alone died. And so when we think about what's going on today, uh, we see that this kind of thing has happened again and again throughout Throughout history, in, in the United States, we've had the 1820 cholera outbreak, an 1832 cholera epidemic, which affected Europe and North America. There were other cholera outbreaks and smallpox outbreaks that occurred uh, down through the last three or four hundred years. So this is not unusual. So what in the world is God doing with all of these things? Well, I'm going to cover that this coming uh, Sunday morning. But the response is always the same. Whatever the source, whatever is happening, the Word of God makes it clear that our response as believers is to trust in a God who, first of all, is omniscient. He knows all of the knowable. As part of his omniscience, he is wise. And in his wisdom, he rules over his creation. He has providential care and guidance over his creation. And that doesn't mean he removes all of the bad things, but he does control it. And that is, but he allows a certain amount to take place through his permissive will, which is based on his omniscience of that which ultimately produces 
the, the best outcome in his plan. And so we have to trust in him because our knowledge is so finite. This was the whole theme in the book of Job. Job goes through a series of devastating losses. Uh, his suffering is overwhelming. It's described in Job 1 and then Job 2. And what he is taught in this process is he gets to the point where he's questioning God. God begins in verse or in chapter 38 to ask him a series of rhetorical questions. And in those rhetorical questions, God is making the point that you can't explain any of these things, Job, and yet you want me to explain why I have allowed this to happen. At some point, you just have to trust me that I know everything there is to know about everything. And this is the best option. And you have to trust me. And that's difficult for a, a lot of people to, to uh, do that. The scriptures speak of God as the king of glory. Psalm 24, 8 says, who is this king of glory? The answer, the Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. He is omnipotent. And so when you combine his omnipotence with his omniscience and his wisdom, he is able to rule over his creation. It appears to us to be out of control, but he is in control. And so we can relax and trust in God because God overrules history and he is the sovereign of human, uh, of human history. So this is what we're learning. This is the backdrop to what we're studying in Psalm 3. And next week we'll get to it to some degree in Psalm 64. Both of these psalms teach complementary principles. Even though Psalm 64 doesn't have a historical uh, superscription, it doesn't identify the time or the place of the specific event. There are a lot of similarities between Psalm 3 and Psalm 64, and it appears that parts of Psalm 64 do answer the prayer of David in Psalm 3. So we'll go through Psalm 64 as well. Just tremendous lessons for us, especially in a time of difficulty. So let's just remind ourselves of what's going on here, what the time is, what the setting is, what the context is for David thinking through these things. He began to think it through as he is fleeing from Absalom. This is a picture of looking to the south uh, in Israel. We have the east gate over here on the right. This wall that is here is the wall around the Temple Mount. Just below that, in this area of green here, you have the ancient city of David, which just covered six or seven acres. It's not very large at all. David has been fleeing along this valley. You can see this valley here. This is the Kidron Valley. And then somewhere along here, this is maybe a mile or a mile and a half, no more, from the city of David. And so here he begins to lead his people up over the shoulder, this ridge that you begin to see here on the left is the ridge up over uh, the Mount of Olives. And as he's traveling and as he goes up over the Mount of Olives, he's beginning to think through what is going on here. And that night he sees an answer to his prayer. Last time we studied this, that this is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So we know that with, with certainty. 
And as he goes over the ridge, he's thinking these things. He says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. So many have rebelled against him, have conspired against him, have turned against him. And he's just laying out his lament or complaint here. When we get to Psalm 64, we will see that he calls upon God to hear my complaint, O God. Uh, listen to me. And, and when the Bible says something like here, doesn't mean just can you repeat back to me what I said. It means to hear and do. When God says to Israel, uh, hear me, O Israel, he means hear and obey. So hearing isn't just did you listen to me? Did you hear the words that I said? It means to hear and respond and do what I say. So in Psalm 64, 1, we could translate that. You know, hear and respond, listen to me and do something, is how it could be uh, paraphrased. And so that's, um, that relates to what is going on here at the beginning of Psalm 3. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there's no help for him of God. See, they continuously are taunting him. We'll see in Psalm 64, uh, he talks about this conspiracy against him. And they're lying, they're maligning him, they are uh, slandering him, they're ridiculing him. And this is depicted in verse 2. They're saying, God's not going to help you. It's all over, David. It's lost. There's no help for him in God. And then in verse 3, which is where we will start tonight when we get into the exposition, he shifts. He's identified the complaint in verses 1 through 2, but then in verse 3, it's a shift to the solution. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield to me. And that's where we need to be standing. And our thinking is that it is God who is our, our shield. He is the one who is uh, protecting us. And we don't know, at actually in, in a definitive sense, uh, the basis for his confidence, other than God has protected him in the past many, many times during the times of, of when Saul was trying to kill him during his battles with the Philistines, God has always protected him. And so David recognizes that. And so he can, uh, he can come to God with confidence. That's what we need to learn is that we come to God, uh, with great confidence that he can he will answer our prayers. So when I broke this down the last time, which was over two weeks ago, we saw three basic divisions in these eight verses. First of all, David expresses an anxious and fearful surprise that his adversaries who seek to destroy him have increased so rapidly. See, this is what happens. James, we talked about this on Sunday morning. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter or fall into it. It's a surprise. It's, it's you walk around the corner and bam, something happens that you didn't expect. When you fall into various, various trials, it's a surprise and he's just stunned. And so this is a test. Everything in life is a test because we have to decide whether to do it God's way or our way. And so David has to... He expresses his surprise that so many are against him. Their numbers have increased so rapidly. That's the first two verses. The next division, which is focused tonight and the last part as well, David then expresses his confidence in God. And the, because he has confidence in God, 
it results in a relaxed mental attitude. So what we see is also illustrated here in the tenses of these verbs. Lord, how they have increased, past tense. Many are they who rise up against me. Uh, many are they who, um, who say of me there's no help in God, past tense. But you, O oh Lord, and the indication here, if you look in your um, New King James translation, the R, A-R-E is in italics. You don't have a verb there. It's, it's more abbreviated. You, are, you, O oh Lord, a shield to me. My glory and the one who has lifted up my head. It shouldn't be translated as a present tense. Uh, you have lifted up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. So here he's expressing the fact that God answered his prayer. And the specific of that prayer is then given in verse 5, I lay down and slept. Because he has confidence in God, it's now the next morning, and he's had this prayer answered, and so he's able to lie down, relax. He's not going to sit there and just think it through all night long and worry about everything. He's going. To, this is in the Lord's hands, First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. So he lies down, and he's relaxed, and he sleeps. And we read, I awoke. For the Lord sustained me. That's what we see there. So this is in verses uh, 3 through 5. And then David's confidence in God is then rehearsed in verses 6 through 8. The present reality. Because God is who he is. Because he is a shield to me. And he is the one who has lifted up my head. or He's the one who's put me in authority. I can relax. I'm not going to be afraid of 10,000 people or 10,000 viruses. You have set themselves against me all around. Arise, Lord, save me, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation begins to the Lord. It is a confidence, uh, so he is relaxed. So last time we just looked at those first two verses as David cries out to God in prayer initially in verse 1, and then he talks about how his enemies... Uh, ridicule him, they make fun of him, and they tell him that there's no help in God. And I pointed out last time that actually you see the reversal take place at the end because help belongs to the Lord. So on the one hand, they say there's no help for him, and then he says help or salvation belongs, uh, belongs to the Lord. So David cries out in prayer. Everybody's against him. Everybody's turned against him or feels that way. And so he's going through a test of rejection. He's going through a test of rejection. And many of us have gone through that in the past. We can experience rejection in a lot of different ways. But this is one where many people close to him, even his beloved son Absalom, have turned against him. And so he can easily slip into self-pity. This is what happens when a lot of people go through rejection. It may be rejection because you've lost a job. It can be rejection because you have lost a loved one in death, and it feels like rejection. It can be rejection because you have gone through a breakup in some romantic relationship or in marriage. Uh, It could be divorce, and so 
the result of this can be quite devastating, and we go through a very dark place of depression uh, sometimes in those kinds of situations. And so we want to focus on the problem. But God wants us to focus on the solution. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Psalms as you read them is they'll start off with an experience that is much like we've had, uh, a complaint, a lament. Uh, it's just outlining a problem. And then the focus shifts to God. And by the time you get to the end of the Psalm, there is rejoicing and there is often a vow to go to the temple and to bring a thanksgiving uh, thanksgiving offering. So the idea here is that he is facing his enemies, and they have risen up uh, against him. So now uh, he is calling upon the Lord to save him. We're reminded of the real solution here, which is to turn to God, whatever the crisis may be. That doesn't mean there aren't secondary things that we should do. For example, we don't want to do things that are foolish. We have a situation with this, with this virus, but it can be many other situations where you trust God. But there are certain things that you do that are uh, pretty much uh, normative behavior. Uh, we trust God, but we're going to keep our powder dry. That was a saying that came out of the old American frontier. You trust God, but you make sure that you're ready in case there's an Indian attack. We're going to trust God, and we're going to keep our hand sanitizer very close. And we're going to wash our hands 15, 20 times a day. And we're going to be careful where we go. We're going to be careful uh, not to go into, into a lot of big crowds because we just don't know. From the reports that I get, I'm hesitant to say this because every time somebody tells me, this is what's going on. This is this medical expert, and they say these five things. Next thing that happens, you get three other medical experts who say just the opposite. I've been told in the last couple of days so many different things that are contradictory. I watch this doctor being interviewed on one news show, that doctor on another, and I don't think we have enough information yet. But the bottom line is they all come to the same conclusion and that is we need to be very, very careful. We need to wash our hands. We need to socially distance and do these kinds of things just to make sure because the contagion factor in this virus is just so incredibly, uh, so much inc more incredibly quick than other viruses. And so it can spread and spread and spread. In fact, I'll give you an example of how this spreads, how quickly this spreads. When we learned about two weeks ago that there was a case of this uh, coronavirus here in Houston, and then the next day we learned that there were two people, two other people who were testing positive. They were in northwest Harris County. The first one was down in the Richmond-Rosenberg-Sugarland area, and then we learned that there were some others. It turns out that all of these had gone to Egypt. They had gone on a uh, Nile cruise, much like uh, the cruise that we went on when I took a group at the end of December, and we came back on the 4th of January. What the CDC and other organizations were able to do was to trace this back. They were able to go back to the boat. All of these people had been on the same boat. 
they were able to determine that on each successive week in February, this boat took a group of tourists and they went from Luxor down to Aswan just as we did. And then they discovered that in late January, probably the third week of January, there was a Taiwanese-American woman who came who was infected with this coronavirus. She didn't have any symptoms. She didn't know she was sick, and yet she is shedding virus all over the place. It infects the workers on the hotel boat. It affects the people who are working in the kitchen. It uh, it infects a number of other people who are on the tour with her, and they're from America. They're from different states. They're from Pennsylvania, Maryland, Texas, and they are all infected, and they all come home and go to their homes and go to their home states, and then they become the source of contagion for people in in those in those areas. And that, and, and it, then you have the people, the Egyptians who are working on the hotel boats. They're infected now, and so that's at the end. Uh, they get infected the end of January. The next week, the same boat picks up a new set of tourists. They all get infected. Then the next week, another boat. The next week, another boat. And they're taking tourists from uh, Europe. They're taking from uh, Americans, Canadians, a mix of people. And so in within the period of a month, this one woman rapidly infects numerous Egyptian workers on the boat. And they, in turn for the next month, infect numerous tourists that take this back home with them. That's how rapidly this thing passes. It's just incredible. And by the grace of God, this did not happen uh, until after we got we left Egypt. It was three weeks, and that's just the wall of fire. That's God protecting us. But it's a great illustration of how rapidly this whole thing can can um, can be passed along. And so we need to be very careful about that. Psalm 27, 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The answer is no one and nothing, because God is in control. He is the king of the universe, and he rules it in wisdom and knowledge. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. I am not going to tremble. I'm not going to be overcome with terror or dread or uh, depression. These are verses that I encourage parents and grandparents to talk to your children, talk to your grandchildren about this that this is something that's serious, but God protects us, and that we as Christians are to respond differently because we trust God. And we'll talk more about that on this coming Sunday morning. That psalm, Psalm 27, ends in verses 11 to 14. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. Now, this psalm could fit within the framework of the Absalom Rebellion because the false witnesses, the slander, the maligning, the gossip about David, this fits with verse 12, but we don't know. Uh, David says, I would have lost heart unless I believed. 
that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So because he trusted in the promise of God, he knew he would survive. And he concludes by saying to all of us, wait on the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, Isaiah says. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Same word here for wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. And that's an interesting word. We'll see it in Psalm 64 next time. Chazak, to strengthen or to make strong. So, so that refers to our spiritual strength, our moral and spiritual courage, which comes from waiting on the Lord. So last time I talked about the fact that we have three enemies. David had his enemies. We've got three enemies. First of all, our adversary, the devil, First Peter 5.8. Second, the world system, which Christ has overcome, John 16.33. And our own sin nature, First Peter 2.11. So the first verse is translated, Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Then in verse 2, we read, many are they who say of me, there's no help for him in God. And so the idea here is that, that there are so many who are against him, that number has multiplied, and there's no help. That word is Yeshua. There's no deliverance. There's no rescue. There's no military victory. That's the same word that's used down uh, in verse uh, 8 for salvation. It's, of course, related to the name of Jesus, who in Hebrew is Yeshua, the Savior. I talked about, as we closed last time, Psalm 62, 1 and 2. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my deliverance. This isn't talking about eternal salvation. This is talking about deliverance from problems, from adversity, from difficulties, from heartaches, from the challenges of life. He is our rock. We get our stability from God. It doesn't come from our circumstances. It doesn't come from our bank account. It doesn't come from our 401K. It doesn't come from our investments. It doesn't come from our house. It doesn't come from our friends and our family. We're going to be tested in so many different ways in the coming weeks because of the social distancing and isolation that we're going to come. Let me just run through a couple of things for you just to remind you of the various categories of adversity that we, we can face. We face many people, much people testing, and this all has to do with relationships, our social life and friendship. Well, we're not going to be able to get together with our friends. This may be okay the first week. It's going to start getting a little rugged on the second week. But where are you going to get together? Are you going to get together at your house, at their house? Are you going to get together at your local uh, restaurant or watering hole or wherever it is? Well, they're all closed. So where are we going to do this? We're going to go to the gym and work out together? No, they're all closed. So this is going to create a level of, of tension and adversity in our lives. may lead to family problems. After about three weeks, of everybody being in closed quarters and, you, you know, somebody, your folk parents are working at home. Kids aren't going off to school and kids can be infected with this and never show a sign and they can infect others. So you got to be careful there. Uh, this can lead to some real family problems. So parents need to be proactive in making the study of the word a real focus, developing, if you've never done it before, it's a good time to develop 
family worship, just reading the scriptures at the breakfast table, bringing the family together, talking about what are we experiencing, what are the emotions that are going on, how do we apply the word, what are the promises, taking a different promise every day to memorize something of that nature. But this is going to present a realm of of challenges. So in relationships, we've always had problems that people have faced as they're uh, going through their teens and 20s and 30s with uh, romance and marriage, personal conflicts at the office, and dealing with injustice from others. There's always very negative office politics going on. This can include various forms of rejection or perceived rejection. All of these kinds of tests are going on. David is facing some of this. He's got problems in his family. He's got problems related to his, we're going to get to this, where his son Absalom takes David's concubines up on the roof and has sexual relations with them in front of everybody. Uh, There's unfair treatment. There are lies and slander, all of these things. Second category is historical disasters. We can go through economic depression or recession. With the way the stock market has dropped, although it's not due to economic factors per se, it is related to this virus, and it could trigger a major recession or a major depression. People are losing their savings on paper because uh, their 401K has dropped 30% or 40% in the last uh, six weeks. It may affect their retirement, their ability to earn a living, all of these things. Um, David is facing that loss. He's lost his home. He's lost a lot of the things that he had. We have criminal disasters, robbery. If things go on long with, with people unemployed and no, no income, I can certainly see that there's going to be a problem with criminal activity. People are desperate for to pay their bills, to find medicine for their children, for whatever it may be, breaking into homes, looking for drug money, looking for anything of value. And so we, could, we really need to protect ourselves and be prepared for that. Uh, other criminal disasters that happen, people are, are guilty of embezzlement. I know of business owners who've had employees that have embezzled incredible amounts of money from them, uh, blackmail, fraud, child abuse. Then you have something that many of us have experienced, the sins of the tongue. We're victims of slander or a written libel. We're uh, guilty of, I mean, uh, we're victims of gossip and judging and maligning people attempting to destroy our, our reputation. And then we have health disasters, and that's, that's the core of everything that's happened, but it can trigger so many other things. So all of these are part of the disasters that we face, and yet we need to be like the writer of Psalm 89 as he's praying to God on the basis of the, of the Davidic covenant. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my rock, my God, and the rock of my salvation. God is our rock. The only way to have stability in times of crisis is depending upon God. So that's our review. That was a long review, about 40, 40 minutes. And now we get into the new section, Psalm 60. Uh, this second uh, section, David expresses his confidence in God and the resulting relaxed mental attitude in the midst of the battle. So much of our mental attitude depends on our focus. Are we focusing on the circumstances? Are we focusing on God? 
Peter illustrates this when he wants to walk on the water and walk out to Jesus. He's focusing on Jesus, and for the first few steps, he walks. And then suddenly he realizes there's a big wave coming. And rather than continuing to look to Jesus and trust Jesus, he puts his eyes on the, the, the wave, and he switches from faith to fear, and then down he goes. This is what happens in our experience time and time again in many, many different ways. And so in verse 3, we see how this shift has taken place where David goes from focusing on the waves, focusing on the circumstances and adversity to focusing on God. In verse 3, he says, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. So in the face of these adversities, we must remind ourselves that God has a plan for our lives. That's what he's looking at. God has a plan. And as such, God is going to protect us. God's going to provide for us. And that's what is reflected by his statement. You, O Lord, are a shield for me. And so there's uh, three different words that are important to understand here to get a sense of what's going on. He says, first of all, O Lord, O Yahweh, covenant name for God, you are a shield for me. God provides protection. God is the defense wall against the attacks. The attacks are going to continue to come. The problems, the adversities in life, they're still going to come, but there's this shield that is going to be there to protect us so that we can just relax behind it. God is our shield. This is the Hebrew word uh, magen, and this is just refers to uh, to a shield. For example, there's a wine, Mogan David. Mogan is a form of this word, uh, so that we, uh, it's just talking about an emblem, the shield of David, magen David. Now, you're a shield for me. This is seen in passages like Psalm 7, verse 10. My shield is with God. We have to ask ourselves, are we going through life conscientiously recognizing God is our shield, God is our protector? That doesn't mean that we shouldn't take certain precautions, that we shouldn't wear a seatbelt, shouldn't wear a helmet on a motorcycle, things like that. But that ultimately our Excuse me. Okay, our protection is God. Psalm 18.2 uses various metaphors to describe this. The Lord is my rock. This isn't some small rock, something you pick up in your hand. This is an enormous rock, something that provides absolute stability, can't be shaken, can't be chopped down or removed. Is our fortress. He protects us. He surrounds us. He's our deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my metzada, like the fortress out in the Judean desert down by the Dead Sea, my stronghold. Uh, Psalm 1830 and 35. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried or it's tested. It's evaluated. It stands firm. His promise is, is secure. He is a shield 
to all those who take refuge in him. We need to constantly take refuge in him, walk in dependence upon him. Psalm 1835, you have also given me the shield of your salvation. And your right hand, the right hand is the hand of power, the hand of strength, the hand of authority. Your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. And then in Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. My heart is not talking about emotion. It's talking about your intellect, that which is your cognitive area of your brain. You think about the Word of God. You think about who God is, and you rehearse those attributes in the essence box, and so that you are able to trust in Him and relax. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts. We talked about this Sunday morning. We trust in God, and then we have joy. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you have when you encounter various trials. How can you count it all joy? You trust in God in the midst of that test, and your heart has joy. You're, you have a mental attitude of stability and tranquility and contentment and peace. And with my song, I shall thank Him. Psalm thirty-three twenty. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 35, 2, take hold of buckler and shield. Another image, rise up for my help. So this is the first aspect of Psalm 3, 3. O Lord, you are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Glory here is the word kavod. Kavod is an interesting word. Its root meaning is to be heavy. Often it was applied to the liver because the liver was the heaviest organ uh, in the body. But the significance of glory is to stress the importance of God, his centrality to our life, his significance in our life. When he says, Lord, you are my glory, he says, Lord, you are the center of my life. Without you, I'm nothing. Without you, I can't survive. Without you, my life is meaningless. So when he states that God is his glory, he's stating all these things. You are everything to make my life work. You are my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Now, this then becomes the third metaphor here. Lifting up the head means to put David in a place of power and prestige, to lifting him up to be the king. And so this is, he's stating here, you are the one who put me on the throne. You are the one who lifted up my head. Head is a sign for authority. You lifted me up and established me in my position of authority over over Israel. Then we come to the next two verses. Uh, in verse verse uh, 3, we said, You, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who uh, lifts up my head. And then what does he do? He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Now, what have I said about hearing? Hearing implies doing something, responding, doing what was the, the focal point of the cry. And so this is another way of expressing the prayer that I think is referred to in Psalm 64.1. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. What's his holy hill? 
His holy hill is Zion. His holy hill is the Temple Mount. His holy hill is is where God dwelt on uh, among in the midst of the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ark of the Covenant is considered His footstool. And so he's saying he's looking to the temple, looking to the presence of God on the earth and says he heard me from his holy hill. What's the result? God's answered my prayer. So now I have confidence in him. I know that God is going to protect me and I can just lie down here, much like Daniel did in the lion's den, just lie down, pet the cats, go to sleep. And that's what David is saying here. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I slept through the night and I didn't die. I wasn't attacked. I wasn't ambushed. Uh, I didn't have anything wrong take place. I woke and I, I woke the next morning. Why? Because the Lord sustained me. My life must be entrusted to God. Our lives must be entrusted to God. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who protects us. We have to be reminded uh, very much that, that our days are numbered by God. We're going to live to a certain date, a certain hour, a certain minute of that day. Nothing that we do can change that. Now, that doesn't mean we can be irresponsible and do all kinds of foolish things, because we just might discover that God's timing is right now. And you're doing something foolish, and that's God's timing. So we need to do that which is wise and that which is responsible, but it gives us courage. It gives us a great, great strength. And we know that God is the one who uh, provides for us, and God is the one who, who takes care of us. So we can lie down, we can relax and have that relaxed mental attitude in the midst of the crisis. First Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Constantly telling God. And, the, and, and you said, wow, that's just so hard. You bet it's hard. Every one of us goes through that. We take it off of our back, put it on God's back, and as soon as he gets to where he takes the load, we grab it and say, no, I think I'm going to keep carrying that for a while. And we are in a tug of war with most of our cares and worries and, and anxieties most of the day because we haven't spent enough time practicing and sustaining this practice of casting our care upon him. We put our concerns on him and we take them back. We need to put them on him and leave them there. We cast them there, we relax, and let God take care of the situation. Now that brings us to the last three verses in this psalm. And this expresses David's confidence David's confidence in God in verses 6 or 8. His fear is replaced with faith. Verse 6, he says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Doesn't matter how many people have gone over to Absalom. Doesn't matter. God plus one is a majority. If God is on our side, then why should we be afraid? So David recognizes this principle. He says, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people. I won't be afraid of all the viruses. I'm not going to be afraid of all of these diseases. I can relax. I will take the proper precautions. But God is the one who protects and preserves me. 
So he expresses this in verse 6. I'm not going to be afraid of these 10,000 people who are then described as those who have set themselves against me all around. And then in verse 7, he, in confidence now, he calls upon God uh, to deliver them, to deliver him. In verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, and save me. Now, it's interesting the wordplay that takes place here, because back in verse 1, he said in the second stanza, many are they who rise up against me. But now he says, O Lord, rise up, arise, and save me. And so here he is going to uh, counter what the enemy is doing. He uses the same words. Arise is the Hebrew word kum, to rise up or to stand, often to take a stand in a defensive posture. And again, it's the word yasha, which means to deliver. In many cases, uh, if we had, uh, I, I was talking with one man this summer in our Friday morning pastors group. He had written a chapter in this book we've been working our way through called 21 Tough Questions About Grace. And he had done an extensive uh, detailed study of Yasha, and his conclusion was that it never refers to spiritual deliverance, that is justification throughout. I think that uh, uh, there are some places in maybe Psalm 51 and other places where that's not correct. But the, the point I would say is the vast majority of places where Yasha is used in the Psalms does not refer to justification at salvation. It refers to God's physical deliverance of, uh, of us in the midst of adversity. So arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. And I think these are what the grammarians will call a prophetic uh, verb. It, it's stated in the present tense or the past tense as if it is, it is so certain that it's stated in the present or past tense even though it hasn't yet taken place. So he knows that God is going to deliver, deliver him. We see something very similar in other psalms, such as Psalm 7, uh, verse 1. O Yahweh my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me. This isn't justification, salvation. It is deliverance from, a adverse, uh, from an adversity. And deliver me. Psalm 34, 6. This poor man cried out. And Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 55:16. As for me, I will call upon the Lord, and the Lord shall save me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth, his loving kindness, chesed, and his truth, amunah. This goes on to say, my soul is among the lions. He's surrounded, not by literal lions, but by those who would devour him, destroy him, just like a literal lion would. He says, I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows. It's interesting how many times he compares men to military weapons. Their tongue is like a sword. We'll see this in Psalm 64. His tongue is like a sword. 
Uh, he, it is sharp and, and destructive, and what he speaks are compared to arrows that go out and attack. So he says here, his teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all of the earth. And so then he comes to the last part, last two verses of the psalm. And he says, Arise, O Lord, save me. Save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. See, this is compared to Psalm 2.9. When the Messiah comes, so there's a messianic overtone here. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So God is the one who brings the victory. And so he concludes, salvation belongs to Yahweh, your blessing. That is, you enrich your people by the way you intervene in the affairs of their lives and and bring deliverance to them from the adversity that they are facing. So that brings us to the end of this psalm. But next time, we're going to look at Psalm 64. Now, Thursday night, we'll be back here again for our study in Second Peter. Sunday, we'll go back to our topic dealing on how to deal with this, this uh, pestilence, this plague, this virus that is uh, turning our lives upside down so that we can have the kind of influence that believers have had historically in times of, of these plagues and pestilence. And so we'll learn some Good things historically about how Christians have made such an incredible impact uh, from the time of the Roman Empire all the way up through the 19th century. Father, we thank you that we have you to turn to. You are our shield. You're our rock, our fortress. You are the one who surrounds us, and we hide ourselves in you. You are the one who has provided everything for us, and you have, the, have a plan for our lives. You have determined when we will when we will die, you have de- uh, determined uh, the course of our lives. And, Father, we're thankful that we can just relax and trust in you and that you have given us so very much. We thank you for these things. We thank you for your blessing in our lives. And in these times when we can't get together uh, as a church, we're reminded of our responsibilities to continue to minister for one another, to pray for one another, to uh, strengthen one another when we can through various contacts, through phone calls, uh, through email, other things, so that we can continue to uh, maintain that uh, human horizontal fellowship uh, as a result of the fellowship that we have with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.